Well, tonight we are going to continue in our series in the book of Jude. We'll be looking at Jude verses 1 through 4. Uh, and we did an overview of the entire letter uh, last week. And so now we're just jumping into what we might call the introduction of the letter. And I will read that. Uh, you can find this uh, passage on, um, in your Bible. I didn't write down the page number, so it's in there. So... Uh, just before Revelation. It's right there. <laughs> uh, I'll be reading Jude, verses 1 through 4, uh, bringing the text up on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Oh, I'm on the wrong page. Wrong, wrong verses here. So maybe I need to turn to that. So, so I messed up the slide. So... Let's try that again. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, uh, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So I remember when we had our first child, and, uh, and as new parents, as all new parents usually are, we were... Uh, hypersensitive to every sound, uh, any anything that, uh, that that could possibly be wrong, you know. Especially, the worst was actually when they, it was nighttime and when they were sleeping. You know, you're just kind of like, was that noise they made okay? Is it is, is is something wrong? Is he breathing? You know, like it's just it, you know going down like okay, you know, is that is a little chest move? You know, like it was you know always always looking. Well, you know, and and. It's a familiar feeling to especially new parents or people who've, who've had children. But why are we like that? Well, because bad things happen in this world. And bad things can happen to small children and even babies. And we don't want them to happen to our babies. So we're very careful. We're hypersensitive. But you have to learn, and you do learn over time, how to discern between the good noises and the bad noises, between the cries that are okay and the cries that something is actually wrong. Um, likewise, in a fallen world, the gospel can become corrupted, even in the church. But is every problem in the church a corruption of the gospel problem? How do we discern between a small problem and one that is striking at the heart and vitals of the faith. Well, sometimes it's very clear, very easy to tell. And other times, and probably more often, it can be challenging to figure out. And we don't want to make the mistake of treating every error as if it's a denial of the Trinity. But we also don't want to be poisoned with false teaching as a church. So tonight, Jude is going to help us, first by reminding us of the nature of the church, and then by clarifying the struggle of the church. So first, 
uh, we consider the nature of the church with, uh, in verses 1 and 2. Now we're starting, starting here with the greeting that, uh, that Jude gives in the letter, and we spent a good deal of time last week on the author of this letter, and we're not going to repeat that here. Suffice to say, Jesus had two brothers of, uh, by his earthly parents named James and Jude, and one of them wrote a letter sometime between 50, A.D. 50 and 65, and now the letter was likely written to Christians living in the area of what is modern-day Israel. The late 2nd century Christian writer Julius Africanus uh, said the family of Jesus ministered in that area. But the greeting tells us uh, about more than simply the author of the letter. It it speaks to us uh, about the very nature of the church. And first we observe in James' self-identification by how he identifies himself what we can call our mutual service and brotherhood in Christ. Jude identifies himself as a servant of Jesus Christ, and indeed, that is what we are. We are servants of Christ. Now, our fundamental identity, as Jude's going to go on and, 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 and speak about, is as Christians, uh, is, our fundamental identity as Christians is as children of the living God and citizens of the kingdom of God. This is why we call each other brother and sister, is because we are family members in the family of God. But one of the most common ways to refer to a, to a Christian in reference to our engagement in the work of the church, the mission of the church, is as a servant of Christ. That service, the, the being a bond slave to Christ, is expressed through the work of gospel proclamation and the building up of the body of Christ. In writing this letter, Jude reminds us of the mutual service that Christians owe one another. He reminds us that our freedom in Jesus came not only at a cost, but with an obligation to serve others, especially those in the church. In summary, as it relates to our eternal inheritance, we are children of God. As it relates to our life on this earth and our work here, We are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's the first aspect. The second aspect is that James reminds us that we are the family of God. He references his relation to his brother James, and indeed he is a blood relative to James, but that brotherhood goes deeper into the spiritual realm as these brothers relate to each other, not merely as, uh, as, as brothers uh, through Joseph and Mary, but as brothers in the Lord. And let us not forget the brotherhood of the church or the sisterhood of the church. There's no word that means siblinghood. You know, I couldn't find one. So. But, but the point is that we have a huge family with a deep history and a glorious future. We see this explicitly as Jude declares that we, the church, are called, beloved, and kept. Look at how he describes the church. We are called both generally and effectually. There is the, this, what we call the general call of the gospel that goes out to everyone, uh, which we are commissioned to, to take unto the world. 
Uh, We don't know who will answer that call to repent and believe the gospel, but God does. Yet this is not the calling which Jude is referring to. He is speaking of the church that is called out of the world, like Abraham was called out of Ur into the covenant promises. The church that it was called out of slavery is called out of slavery and death, just as, uh, as, as Israel was called out of Egypt in the Exodus. The church is called out of the world, out of these things, but also, as Jesus makes clear in, in John 17, he also calls his disciples, his church, into the world in service to our glorious mission. The church at the end of the day is going to be called into the new world, the new heavens and the new earth, to live in eternal joy in God's presence. We are called, but the church is also beloved in God. Beloved simply is the, that, uh, the, the very familiar Greek word agape. It's, it's to love. It's, it's turned into uh, effectively a, a, a passive participle, and basically it means one who is loved, beloved. We are loved by God the Father in his plan for our redemption, in the sending of his Son, in, the, in his compassionate condescension to us. Further, we are loved in God the Father as we are united to the Godhead through the Son, by the Holy Spirit, in faith. And we must remind ourselves and, and even ask ourselves, and it may be an odd question to have someone ask you, but, uh, you know, if you had another Christian come to you and, and ask you, do you know that you are beloved in God the Father, Christian? Do you know that? Have you forgotten it? Do you know that he cherishes you, that he has great affection for you, that he delights in you? That he calls you beloved. Third, the church is kept for Jesus Christ. The word kept also means guarded. The church is kept, it is guarded for Jesus Christ. The, uh, you know, and if you think about the, how the preposition was used for beloved in God or beloved by God, it's, that, that preposition is primarily positional. But here the preposition reveals the purpose and power of Jesus to accomplish the purpose of both the Father and the Son in the Spirit. The church is being kept guarded from destruction because we belong to Jesus and we are meant to be with him forever. We just, uh, in our uh, officer training, we were just discussing the nature of the church. And there's a line in our confession that says, there will always be a church to worship the living God. Whether the church is persecuted or the church is taking itself out through, through infighting or, or heresy and is imploding, there will always be a church to worship the living God. And so we need to revel tonight in the blessed security that we have as the church of Jesus Christ. The glorious realities of what the church is presently because of God's divine plan, the wondrous work of his Son, and the indwelling presence of the Spirit. 
And the last thing before we move on to the second point is that the church are, is called, beloved, and kept. That's who the church is. But also, Jude notes here, uh, that the church needs mercy, peace, and love. So we need to consider this reality of, of, uh, of what the church is, called by God, beloved in God, kept by God for Jesus. Yet Jude, with all that massive statements, the indicatives of what the church is, um, he also is, he notes what the church needs, even though all those things are true. And the most present need, the most pressing needs of the church, you'll notice, are not budgetary needs. The church, he says, needs mercy, peace, and love. Uh, these we can talk about individually, but they are all needed, all three of them, for the life of the church. The church has many enemies in the world that would seek to silence and oppress her. But the problems that Judah is going to address in his letter are problems that are coming from within. As I like to say, the call is coming from inside the house, right? Christians still sin against God and each other. The elders and deacons fail at times to lead and serve properly. Mercy is, is what is needed that we, that it, because mercy is what fuels our ability to forgive one another and to seek forgiveness and repentance. Mercy brings peace into the church, leads us to repentance, reconciles what is at odds in the body of Christ. And love, as Peter says in his letter, covers a multitude of sins. The Apostle Paul says love is a necessary ingredient to make everything in ministry in the church, work. That without it, we got nothing. But these three things, mercy, peace, and love, we note, are not things that we can provide ourselves. We can't go get them at Sam's. We don't have them in the back storage closet. Can't order them on Amazon. They're not going to find him in a commentary. We may do the work of repentance. We may do the work of reconciliation. We may do the work of seeking and extending forgiveness. But it is the Lord who gives these things their efficacy. It is the Holy Spirit who makes them work. And so let us not be surprised when there are problems in the church. Let us not be shocked to find out our church is a needy church, that Bailey Presbyterian Church is a needy church. We need things that we cannot provide ourselves, like, like mercy and love. Let us not despair when things have gone wrong. How could that happen in our church? Be like, you met us, right? How could it happen here, right? No, you, you met me, right? Yeah. Rather, let us pray earnestly for one another and even for other churches that are near us, that we're connected to, that mercy, peace, and love may be multiplied to them and to us, for that's what we need. The church is a group of individuals who have been made a family in Christ 
and servants of Christ who have amazing promises and graces in the very nature of our redemption, who yet struggle in the world and are are in need of divine provision to, to make it. But God promises to do it, to help us to supply our needs. So having considered here now the the nature of the church in the first two verses, we move on to verses 3 and 4, where we find uh, Jude clarifying the struggle of the church. And the first thing we note is in the first part of verse 3, which is this observation that we have a common salvation with a unique Savior. Note the use of the word beloved again for the church and for the Christians that he's writing to. Uh, and, this, and so this sets the context. The whole context of Jude's letter is set in the context of affection, of love. And we may blow past it, but why did Jude feel the need to write, not about contending for the faith, but why was he saying in the first place that he was eager to write about our common salvation? For one thing, I'm just trying to think, like, what is it that drives Jude here to even come up with his original idea? You know what? I'm going to go write those Christians a letter, and I'm going to write about our common salvation in Christ. Why does he even want to do that, let alone what he actually does write? Now, for one thing, our salvation is something that every Christian can rejoice in and ought to rejoice in. It is a common salvation for everyone who comes into faith, does so as a sinner, who is made into a saint and given a share in our eternal inheritance in the kingdom of God. It's a common salvation, as Paul says in in Ephesians Ephesians 4, uh, that there is one Savior, one baptism, one faith. And this unites us, every Christian, from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, across time and space, to the fullness of the elect of God, are all united in a common salvation in Christ. Second, our salvation is something we are prone to forget, to get fuzzy on, which speaks to the need that Jude is actually addressing in the letter, the main point of the letter itself, which is that it is at times, necessary to contend for the faith. It is necessary to contend for the faith. Though Jude seemed to have wanted to bask in the glory of grace and pull out the treasures of God's mercy, which his doxology uh, at the end of the letter shows him more, more than capable of doing, He says that he found it necessary to contend for the faith. Now, the word to contend there means to exert intense effort in a noble cause. The why is that because the faith is under attack. We'll have more to say on that in a minute. But that word faith there, that faith can be a bit of a vague concept. Many would believe that faith can be whatever you want it to be, because after all, you're the one who's doing it. Who's, who's, who's to tell you what faith is or what your faith should be in? But this is not a reference to the near limitless human ability of fallen human beings to believe a whole host of irrational 
and foolish things. Uh, I mean, there are people who enjoy black licorice, right? And they're not to be trusted. Uh, it, it highlights the nature of the Christian faith, uh, which has boundaries and, and, and definition to it. The faith of the church, he says, was delivered once for all. It wasn't delivered in piecemeal, right? It wasn't delivered in, in, in with software updates. We're not on faith 3.7 or 15.47. There is a clearly defined body of knowledge defining God, defining us, and it's especially defining the gospel, which was given at particular times with particular meaning. And so the faith that we profess and commend is not one that we made up, but that which we receive by the proclamation of the word of God. The faith further was delivered once for all to the saints, to Christians, to the church. That is the repository of divine truth leading to salvation that we call the faith was not given out to the world generally into the ether, it's just floating around in space to have anyone do what they will with it. It was given by God to the church through the ministry of the apostles. It was given as, as treasure that we carry in these jars of clay. It was given to the church for our salvation, for our joy, for the building up of the body and for the sharing of it with the world. One scholar wrote, one of, actually one of my professors in seminary from the notes I had in his class, he, but he, he wrote that Jude's statement here speaks to the, quote, permanent, unique, and unchangeable character of the Christian faith, end quote. And there are times when this faith must be contended for. We note in 1 Peter chapter 3, there's that familiar and helpful definition of apologetics that is, uh, that, that is to give an explanation for the hope that is in us. Y'all have heard that before, I'm sure. That was apologetics is to, it's apology, it's to, it's to give an answer for when we get asked what, why, why do we hope in Christ like we do. But here we add to that definition. We don't replace it, but we add to that definition by adding that apologetics is also contending for the faith, striving with great effort for the sake of the faith that was once delivered for all the saints. There are times when we must contend uh, for the faith, and one of those times, Jude says, is when false teachers have come into the church. And this brings us to our last point tonight, which is the warning signs of false teaching. The warning signs of false teaching. Let me know if I'm doing any of them tonight, so... Yeah. All right. But uh, so first, uh, there's a the note here on the nature of false teaching is that Jude makes it clear that the nature of false teaching is sneaky work done by ungodly people. Okay, Sneaky work done by ungodly people. No one announces when they enter a church, hey, I'm a false teacher and I have come to pervert the faith of this church. Right. They're not they don't have it on a T-shirt. It's not under a name tag. OK. No, they're going to come in professing to be a believer just like everyone else. 
They, they, they're going to want, want to give. They're going to want to volunteer. They're going to move up and they want to get opportunities to get into leadership. And, and they have to have some appeal or else they, 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 they wouldn't be a threat. If they just come in and they were just terrible, you know, and everyone just hated them, it's like that, they're, that's not a problem. That person's not going to create, you know, create a bunch of controversy in the church. So they must have some charisma or charm to them. They're also ungodly, false, Jude says, and condemned before God. So we're not just dealing with people, and this is important. We're not dealing with people here uh, who, you know, got some of the finer points, points of their Christian theology wrong. Or people who have, you know, honestly just gotten into sincere error. They just made a mistake and they just didn't, they misread the scriptures or they didn't quite, they didn't understand and they came to a very firm position, but they're wrong. That's not what Jude's talking about. He's not talking about, you know, good faith uh, people professing, you know, people who are professing believers in the church who are just wrong about some stuff. We're talking about people who knowingly infiltrate the church with the purpose of effectively making trouble, usually to benefit themselves who know their beliefs are contrary to the Christian faith, but are also so set in their sinful ways that they don't care, and what they want to do is convert people to their cause. In fact, actually, I know um, a, a church planter who had, who had a guy show up and um, had about 15 guys with him. And, uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, as a church planter, you're, you, know, you want people to come to your church. But... This guy and his 15 lackeys had already created whole hosts of problems in other churches, nearly destroyed another church. And uh, the guy was charismatic, knew his, he knew a lot of Bibles, scripture, he could, you know, he, he, he could win you over in a lot of ways. And so, um, and, uh, and, the, and this, this church planter was very wise, and he knew who this guy was, and eventually the session actually went, uh, uh, empowered him to go to this man and say, you are not welcome here. You need to leave. And the guy made a big ruckus and, you know, you know, stuff, but he left. And thankfully, there's no problems in that church plant. But, uh, but th- and thankfully, that guy's reputation preceded him. But he was a guy that was going in that wanted to take over a church plant. That was going to be his goal. He had failed to do it at other places, but he had caused no small amount of misery in those other churches. There are people who do it. And sometimes small churches, not just church plants, but small churches can experience that. Where someone comes in, they're charismatic, they're blah, 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 but they come in and they're there to enrich themselves and, to, and, to cause a, and they cause a lot of problems. So, um, so, this is the, so it's, it's sneaky work done by ungodly people, not just people who are in error. Um, and so, and he gives us the two major signs, and maybe not, not, not the only two, but two major signs of false teaching. First, he says, they pervert the grace of God. Paul said in Romans that the grace of God was, was, was to be justified by faith, and that this justification by God, by faith in Jesus Christ, was so free that it would naturally anticipate an accusation that if that's how free gospel grace is, then, then why not continue sinning that we may experience more grace? If that's what it is, then let's just then grace should enable us to sin because we'll get to experience more grace. 
And and in Romans chapter 6, Paul responds with the harshest way that he can. There's no more emphatic you can get in the Greek in the way Paul writes it. But he says, may it never be, may it never be. This, that, is, that is an idea that is completely at odds with the nature of grace, he says. That if that's your view, then you actually don't understand the gospel. That you're not a believer if that's what your view is. Um, one clear form of false teaching, though, is that point. That grace does enable us to sin more. That grace does, like grace means that the rules don't really apply to us anymore. It's what we call antinomianism, lawlessness. One example of this, and this is only one example, is thing, something like the prosperity gospel, which uses the grace of God and the gospel to encourage greed and worldliness. That somehow the God's grace is to make you happy, healthy, and wealthy. I was like, I don't remember Jesus saying that when he said, take up your cross daily. Maybe I misread that passage. But we have seen in the evangelical world where pastors and churches will talk loads about grace, but nary a word about obedience to the commands of God and how God's grace enables our obedience. And yes, there's the opposite. There's the graceless churches that is just all obedience and rules, rules, rules. But that's not the problem that Jude is dealing with here. And this is a problem. And, to, and, and I, I even know of a former PCA teaching elder who years ago wrote uh, books about grace, Billy Graham's grandson, right? He had a nice big old PCA church, and he wrote, and he just talked about grace, 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 grace. Well, it turned out that he was cheating on his wife, um, and then we got confronted about it. He was like, well, you know, I, she, she cheated on me first, and so, you know, and I, so I, you know, and he was just the grieved party and all this stuff, and then when... The denomination pressed him and was seeking to discipline him. He ran away and ran off uh, away from the denomination, you know, because he didn't want to lose his ministry. Just his soul. A clear red flag of false teaching is to use the grace of God not to pardon sin, not to free the believer from the guilt of sin, but to excuse sin as if it cost God nothing. But we know that the grace of God is the forgiveness of sin by the Holy Spirit uh, and and that the Holy Spirit in the grace of God enables us with the power to overcome sin, that sin no longer has dominion over us. God's grace is not permission to act immorally. Secondly, the second major flag of false teaching is the denial of our Savior. In perverting the grace of God, false teachers deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. They deny the Master and Lord part, right? They deny the need for obedience, for holiness. And so they, uh, but it, and so they do it implicitly, but in time, false teachers will deny Jesus outright. They will say, they will say in some form or fashion that he is not as he is presented to us in the scriptures. That's part of the reason in 1973 we formed an entire new denomination because we had issues 
with how Christ was being presented and held to as a denomination, what was being affirmed about Christ and denied about Christ. Um, that, he's, that he is, he, they will say that he is something else other than what he's presented in the scriptures, that, uh, that he has, um, uh, that he, that in this, and what is he? Well, that's been divined by uh, personal revelation from God or by applying worldly principles or the philosophies of the age. And they'll say, this, that's not my Jesus. Well, I don't want your Jesus. I want the biblical Jesus. I want the Jesus of the scriptures. I want the true Jesus. And so a clear sign of false teaching is when an individual is not only perverting God's grace, but is also denying the authority, the sovereignty, the divinity, the unique role that Jesus has as our Messiah, who has come not merely as an ultimately, ultimate example for us, but as the Savior of sinners who sheds his blood on the cross to reconcile us to God. There is more to come uh, in the coming weeks on the details of the false teaching that these Christians are dealing with that Jude will address. But tonight, let us be reminded and take warning. We live in a fallen world where the church faces threats from outside the church and inside the church. As we consider false teaching and the threat it poses to the life of the church, let us celebrate the truth of the gospel. Let us contend for it when we need to. When it presents itself, let us not despair or be overcome because we know that the church is called. We know the church is beloved in in God. We know the church is kept by God for Jesus Christ and that God will provide us with all the mercy, peace, and love that we need to endure. Further, God comforts us and blesses us through the mutual service and brotherhood that we have as the family of God. In view of all of this, let us respond tonight by contending for the faith when, when the need arises, but always rejoicing in the common salvation we have in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you indeed for this common salvation, for the faith and mercy and love that you give to your church that we so desperately need daily. So, Father, we pray that you would indeed do that, that you would multiply your, your, your grace, mercy, and love to us in Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, <coughs> that you would increase our peace and joy in Jesus. We pray, Father, that you would protect your church from false teachers, that you would expose them for what they are, for wolves in sheep's clothing, doing great damage and harm to the people of God. Well, Father, we pray that you would continue to help and bless your church. That you would, uh, that we would not fall upon the the error of of, of heresy hunting and uh, and uh, making mountains out of molehills and and uh, and accusing and making small problems into huge problems. But may you give us uh, eyes to see things as they are. Give us understanding and comprehension and compassion. But help us also, Lord, to see the wolves, to see the threats, to see them for what they are, and to be on our guard against them. And Lord, but may we take joy and encouragement in the promises of the gospel and the promises that we have as your church. 
May you continue to bless and lead us as we walk in your holy ways. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.